Today's dead idea, we've been talking about Viking berserkers and the whole Viking world, and now today we have got something very special for you. We have an interview with the host of the Viking Age podcast, Lee Accomando, who's here to talk with us about why the Vikings ever went a Viking in the first place. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife. Last night when I was cooking, I said, Rachel, we're out of salt. And she said, no worries. I'll just borrow a pinch from our neighbors. And she hefted her battle axe and headed out the door. (laughs) So (laughs) I think the real Vikings probably borrowed a whole lot more than salt, but uh, that's her version of it anyway. (laughs) Uh, But the question today, of course, is why did the Vikings venture out of Scandinavia for adventure and raiding and borrowing salt. That's what we're going to try to answer today. And to help us do that is the host of the Viking Age podcast, Lee Accomando. Thank you for being on the show, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Uh, I discovered your show about a year ago. Big fan. It's awesome. Folks, we've recommended Lee's show before, and if you haven't checked it out yet, now's your chance. The content is solid, and Lee goes into far more of the nitty-gritty, blow-by-blow historical details than we ever could in this series. Uh, So if you want more, 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 it is the show for you. Now, Thank you. That's very kind. My pleasure. Now, so far, our series has focused on the late Viking Age because that's when most of the stories about berserkers that come to us through the sagas and those kinds of pieces of literature. Most of those are set in the late Viking Age. But today we're going to turn back the clock a bit. We're going to go old school and we're going to talk about the early Viking Age and what motivated people to jump in a long ship and venture out in the first place. So let's let's start by just basically kind of understanding what it is that we are talking about. So Lee, I've got a question for you. Shoot. What is a Viking, and what does it mean to go a Viking? Yes, so a Viking was someone, usually from Scandinavia, usually, you know, sometime in the early Middle Ages, around 800 or so, mm-hmm. who uh, got a group of people together, got a longship, hopped on the longship, and went to do something outside of Scandinavia or away from their home in some form or another. Uh, most famously, this is going raiding, obviously. So mm-hmm. you're sailing along, you spot a nice monastery, you go pull up on the beach, you get out, you kill a bunch of monks, you take a bunch of silver, you go home. <laughs> I love Everyone's that. happy. I love I love that, that instinct. Like, oh, what a beautiful monastery. Let's raid it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take all their stuff. <laughs> Which I, uh, I talk a little bit about this on my show, um, but... Yeah, if you try and put yourself sort of in that mindset, that must have been the most like amazing, ridiculous thing ever to someone who was going a Viking for the first time. That there's these like beautiful monasteries and there's all kinds of gold and silver and crap in them. And there's monks guarding it. There's no one with swords. There's no one who can stop you. Um, (laughs) It must have just been like a kid in a candy store, but a lot bloodier. Yeah. But so that's obviously the most famous people who we say went a Viking today would also do a lot of trading usually. So A, there's after you steal stuff, 
particularly if you're stealing humans, <laughs> you generally want to sell them to get uh, more silver for yourself or other things. Or if you want to trade in that nice reliquary that you got for coins or, you know, food even, you would go and trade. And so you see at the same time a lot of towns popping up in Scandinavia and elsewhere where people who went raiding but also just full-time traders would go to trade for things, bring more stuff back home, which was the kind of core of what was going on there. So raiding was an economic stimulus package for Scandinavia. Very much so. Um, <laughs> there is no native sources of gold and silver in Scandinavia, and you can see pretty clearly through um, the sources we have in the archaeological record that that's really what they were out for. Hmm. No. Now, I, I, I liked what you said at the beginning, though. You said one thing that a Viking, that going a Viking could mean was raiding, but it was yeah. more than just that, right? Yes. So especially as the Viking Age went on, you started to see many more sort of variations on that, that there was the trading aspect of it. Um, so people going on just trading voyages also became a thing. Mm -hmm. You had, um, particularly in England in the 860s, 870s, these large, large forces of uh, mostly people from Denmark, but kind of all over the place, end up invading and taking over like half of England. It wasn't mm -hmm. England at the time. The Danish. And so... Exactly. The Dane law. You have similar things happening in what is today Ukraine and Russia. Mm -hmm. So people setting up conquering lands and setting up whole states for themselves. And then in sort of a related uh, but slightly different, you also had big groups of people going way across the North Atlantic and settling in Iceland and Greenland and even for a brief time in North America. Mm -hmm. And so what sort of initially begins as people going out to go raiding and maybe a bit of trading ends up turning into this, I've heard it described as a diaspora, that you have okay. Scandinavians stretching everywhere from, you know, Kiev in the Ukraine to uh, Newfoundland in Canada. Yeah. Or if you believe the, the bunk yeah, from my home state all the way to Minnesota, <laughs> which they totally didn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's like a famous runestone that's totally fake in Alexandria, Minnesota that people like to think is real. <laughs> uh, we have one of those in Massachusetts, too. There was, okay. uh, <laughs> there was a rich guy in like the 1800s who was convinced the Vikings came to Boston. Um, and he like wrote whole books about this. It was awesome. It's <laughs> just ridiculous. <laughs> So getting to our main point, kind of, of like why they did this, maybe we should set the stage a little bit to talk about what Scandinavia was like just before everybody decided to kind of break out and start looting. Absolutely. So we'll start at kind of the ground level here, which is people were just farmers for the most part. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of people lived on... Either isolated farmsteads or in small villages and, you know, did things farmers did. Raise cows, raise sheep, grow mm -hmm. grain. And so at its core, that's sort of what was going on. Politically, uh, Scandinavia was super divided at this point, almost mm -hmm. all of it. And so the during the Viking Age, the historical kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden emerged. But at the beginning of the period, right before people started going a Viking, there were really just kind of small petty kingdoms and chieftains that functioned, I've heard it described almost like uh, like mafia bosses, basically. 
Yeah, even <laughs> even the idea of a king, it just it doesn't really fit with our concept of a king that we have here. It's really more like, yeah, like a mafia boss, a chieftain, right? Exactly. That it's yeah. pretty much you have a local strong man who extorts things from everyone around him and keeps a bunch of, uh, you know, big hairy guys with beards who aren't afraid to get stabby. Perhaps uh, a few berserkers. <laughs> Exactly. Perhaps a few berserkers. And but and that's kind of the whole point of the berserker is someone who is going to intimidate your opponents, someone who's going to help you, you know, run your mafia empire. Yep. Okay, excellent. So that's what it was like just before the Viking Age. Now, the question is, why all of a sudden was there a change? I mean, this this state of affairs had been going on for who knows how long. Right. And but then all of a sudden, boom, and then we get the Viking right? So there's an, a number of different models that I've read. And I'm if, if you're okay with it, I'm just going to rattle them off fairly quick, just give a very terse description of what they mean. If you've got some comments, great. But this is just kind of to give the context of what's out there so we can set it up for what you're going to deliver with the particular thing I was asking you to talk about. Listeners, he's, Lee here has got a particularly interesting theory that I want to hear about. So to set up for that, Here are some of the other scholarly models that I've discovered to try to explain why the Vikings went a Viking. So the first one is called the demographic model, which basically says there was a boom in population, and as a result, maybe not enough land to divide up among your sons and daughters. So many ended up finding themselves without property or status, and so why not go abroad to find your fortune? So just a little bit because of the way things were going, they had an extra stimulus to try their hand at something new and maybe go abroad. Yep, so. the oldest theory in the book. <laughs> um, no, but ser- the um, that uh, that was I think it's someone who worked uh, in Normandy, which was taken over by the Vikings. He was sort of the first one, like way back in the nine hundreds, who mm. put that theory forward. Sure, Normandy meaning Northmen land, right? Yes. The Normans were the Northmen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the second model that I discovered is called the economic model, and basically it keys off of the fact that urbanism was booming in Europe at the time, uh, creating ever more enticing targets, and also the Scandinavians being newly connected to the rest of Europe by growing trade routes really kind of like saw this opportunity and just couldn't resist. And you also had the things like silver bullion and coinage flowing in from the Muslim world for kind of the first time really in any quantity. Uh, making its way north, creating new ways of thinking about wealth and increasing wealth inequality, and thus, again, kind of grinding the gears of tension and causing people to seek a change. Perfect. Um, The ideological model, uh, and this has to do with uh, bumping up of religion. So Christianity was spreading, Charlemagne had become Christian, and was rapidly expansionist in his empire, and uh, so... His Christian empire soon bumped up against Scandinavia, triggering tensions and reprisals. And I don't know if this is part of the actual theory, but I imagine that there had to be some increase in the likelihood to see, for the Scandinavians to see, the the Franks and other Christians as other. And thus making it a, a little bit easier to be like, yeah, I'm just going to take your stuff because you're other anyway. Yes, um... I actually get a lot of emails from listeners about this one who are kind mm-hmm. of offended that I didn't mention it. <laughs> um, and 
I have some various opinions about it, but I Go think a it. pretty compelling argument um, just in support of it is uh, right before this period was when Charlemagne, the famous emperor of the Franks, mm-hmm. is running his conquest of Saxony. And basically, the Saxons were pagan. Charlemagne was like, I want your land. And also, you're going to be Christian now. Mm-hmm. And had really, really brutal forced conversions. All sorts of very nasty stuff happened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Saxon leaders, when they were resisting Charlemagne, when he'd get a little bit too close, would piss off and run over the border to Denmark. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely an argument to be made there. I have some uh, quibbles, but there's definitely an argument to be made there that this really missionary, expansionary Christianity was mm-hmm. a new thing at that time, mm-hmm. and Scandinavians were definitely aware of it because there were literally refugees streaming across their borders. Ah, uh, so you had Saxon expats kind of stirring the pot. Exactly. Got it. Okay, cool. So two more real quick. So there's the political model. And this is kind of a push and pull kind of a thing. The push came from within Scandinavia, increasing centralization of power under kings. You can imagine those mafia bosses kind of like gobbling up other minor bosses until they get more and more powerful, until you get kind of like a super boss around which would gather retainers and berserkers and warriors and things who would demand generous payment, perhaps in terms of plunder. So... I need to get some more treasure to keep these guys happy and keep them from turning on me. And uh, there's also the pull aspect of it, which was the the opposite trend, decentralization of power in places like England, uh, which just, again, turned out to be just too tempting of a target. Yep. I think there's a lot of, I think variations on that underlie a lot of this. Um, Mm. And particularly for people who are organizing the raids, Mm -hmm. I definitely think you know, a big pressure if you're one of these mafia bosses is you need silver things to give your stabby people. And (laughs) if you don't have silver to give them, they're not much stopping them from turning their swords on you. Um, So I think that's a really strong motivator there. Yeah, one of the, the virtues of a good chieftain in Northern European cultures is to be a generous ring bearer as I've read. So yes, you are the one who hands out the loot. (laughs) Exactly. And that's something you, I like this theory, particularly because you really see it reflected quite explicitly in a lot of the poetry from this period. Mm -hmm. Um, That that's just the way kings and chieftains are spoken about as ring givers, as ring breakers, um, destroyers of wealth. Destroying meaning dividing it up. Yes. (laughs) Destroying their own wealth at the expense of their retainers. Right. Perfect. Um, So the last one that I wanted to mention is the technological model. And this one uh, keys off the idea that the longship kind of appeared just about at the same time that going a Viking became a thing. Hmm. And before that, ships from Scandinavia were just a little bit clunkier, a little bit heavier and slower. But with new technologies and ship design to techniques of sailing, like being able to tack with the wind or having larger sails, and being able to sail around the clock, like 24-hour sailing, these sorts of advances allowed the Vikings to go further afield and thus raid places further afield, like uh, the north of France, like Britain, like Ireland, and so on. So that would be the last model that I have read that would explain why the Vikings went a Viking in the first place. Very cool. So, now, you have a particular theory from scholarly research as well, uh, but 
I'll let you explain it and uh, really feel free to take the time to really go into it because this one I personally at least find exceedingly interesting. Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to frame up a little bit of there almost certainly were, you know, it's probably all of these explanations to some extent working together. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was sort of looking into this, all of the explanations that I was seeing, and it sounds like uh, your research has shown the same thing, were mm-hmm. these kind of big, broad picture trends and forces, you know, uh, change in the silver flow from the east to the west and big mm-hmm. technological changes. And very few in my opinion, addressed what convinced people to do what objectively is kind of a crazy thing, like (laughs) hopping in a longship and going off into the great unknown. They didn't have maps. They didn't have, you had probably never spoken to anyone who lived greater than a 20 mile radius. Mm -hmm. And suddenly someone's like, hey man, you want to uh, grab your sword and uh, get in my ship and go somewhere? (laughs) Like, that's insane. It is. And not only that, but you got to remember what you're leaving behind, too. Because my wife said to me just before this interview, she was like, well, like, who's going to defend the farm when you're when you go off raiding? I mean, isn't that a huge risk? Exactly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No. And so when I was sort of researching this, a lot of what I wasn't seeing is anything that addressed that. Um, So I went digging. And found this theory by one scholar and a couple of people who have worked off work he's done uh-huh. that I think is at least incredibly interesting and I think tries to address more of that human element. Uh-huh. And that is that for the average Viking going a Viking, uh-huh. the chance to get silver or other movable wealth during a raid or other thing you do abroad could actually really, really, really help your chance of establishing yourself as an independent farmer with your own family and specifically with your own marriage. Mm-hmm. All comes down to sex. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, going into it a little bit more, because I think to some extent that just makes intuitive sense, right? That you would need some amount of wealth to establish your farm. You would need some amount of wealth to get married. You're probably not going to be particularly attractive if you're just some penniless dude living in his mom's basement. Sure, of course it does. (laughs) But there are other sources of wealth. There are land, there's cattle, etc. So why do you have to go afield and get movable wealth in the form of loot and plunder and silver, right? Exactly. And so to understand that fully, you have to understand a little bit about sort of Norse social structure and the way inheritance and things like that worked. Okay. So let's start with um, actually the marriage itself, because that's pretty interesting and uh, kind of sad, depending on your point of view. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare to be sad, listeners. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, so I think for, you know, most of us growing up in the West and really since the 1800s, uh, we have an idea about uh, what is usually called by anthropologists love marriage. And so that's the, you know, canonical idea. Uh, Girl meets boy, boy and girl fall in love. They agree to marry each other. And these are effectively individual decisions that, you know, there's the kind of outdated um, ask the bride's father for her hand in marriage thing. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of viewed as a sideshow, maybe a nice thing to do. 
Mm-hmm. There's little idea, I think, that uh, anyone is actually going to say no. Right. Not so at all in the Viking Age. Um, as far as we can tell in Viking Age Scandinavia, marriage was effectively a business transaction between families. Mm-hmm. And so the groom and mostly the groom's family, though the groom, we have a good patriarchy here, so the groom would sometimes get some say in it, sometimes. Uh, would identify a suitable marriage candidate, someone's daughter. Um, For most people, this would probably be, you know, someone you kind of grew up seeing, maybe, depending on how wealthy you were. And as the groom, you and your father or your brother, some male relative, would go and talk to one of her male relatives. Uh, Her father, if he was alive, brothers, if not. Uh, The only way a woman could be involved with this is if... um, the bride-to-be's dad and brothers were dead, so that's a good oh. one. Then you could talk to her mom. <laughs> um, and you would say, basically, I want to marry Thorberga. Good old Thorberga. You, I know. Ugh. And it would basically be a negotiation, and both sides would bring something to the table. So on the bride's family would offer a dowry, and the groom's family would offer what is nicely called a bride price so that Mm -hmm. gives you some indication of how this whole thing was viewed yeah um and you would just negotiate that value and if it was agreed the bride price and the dowry would be brought together those would both become the joint property of the couple Mm -hmm. who may have never spoken to each other at this point which is important Mm -hmm. then there's a marriage and the, the key relevance here is where's the Where's the wealth for that dowry and bride price coming from here, right? Exactly. Yeah. In that if we go through the marriage, a couple things can happen then. You get married, have kids, everything is great. Those kids inherit the bride price and the dowry. Mm -hmm. In that case, everything's pretty good. Two things that happen super often. One member of the marriage dies early and the other person would inherit all their stuff. Or divorce was quite common. And in divorce, there were a bunch of different rules. It was somewhat like it is now in that there'd be some sort of negotiation and you'd split up the property. And the woman's, uh, what she brought to the arrangement actually went back with her. Is that correct? It stayed her property? Yes. Um, That the dowry was her property in all cases. And the bride price was if the divorce was deemed to be the uh, groom's fault then the bride price would also go with her to her family. Okay. This is super important because the two most common forms of wealth at the time are a pain in the ass to split up. So <laughs> right. <laughs> those are either land or livestock. Um, mm-hmm. Land is obviously just a pain. So um, if you're part of the groom's family and you offer some land as part of the bride price, mm-hmm. if there's a divorce that is your son's fault, if... Uh, your son dies because he's off going a Viking or he just, you know, gets some terrible illness. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that land that you had assumed was going to stay in your family belongs to the bride's family now. And she might remarry and you might hate the person she remarries. And that person now owns your land. And mm-hmm. that's like your land. Pain to try and split that up. Even if the divorce is, uh, if there's a divorce and things go down the middle, how do you determine who gets what? It's a mess. Sure. It's like trying to uh, trying to negotiate like without a prenup. Who's gonna get the cat? Who's gonna get the dog? <laughs> exactly. Um, it's just messy. Yeah, just messy. 
No, I can see how it would be difficult to divide up land because you, you literally cannot move land. But cattle surprises me a little bit because you can separate out individual animals from a herd and the herd itself is movable. So tell me about that. Right. So if events happen quickly, absolutely, you could, you know, split up the individual animals. As time goes on, it becomes more and more muddy of, especially if the couple's successful and starts to grow their wealth. So maybe they started with 10 cattle mm -hmm. and then those cattle have babies. So the herd starts to multiply. Maybe you get some additional cattle from different ventures and you have this herd, say 15 years later. And something bad happens. Figuring right. out what portion of that herd that is now 15 years old and probably has been added and removed to over time, mm -hmm. figuring out what part of that corresponds to the bride price or the dowry is also just kind of a mess. Yeah, that's like trying to figure out your IRAs or something. It's like, okay, <laughs> the compound interest and wait, wait, what now? <laughs> and thinking back like, oh, Bessie had two calves that year, but... <laughs> right. Okay, now I get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this happened a lot. And, you know, we read about in the sagas, people did do this. And it was a mess and everyone hated it. Having movable wealth in the form of silver specifically, but also things like, you know, gems or gold's kind of rare, but gold, ivory, mm -hmm. anything that's kind of easy to move makes this much simpler in that if you have a bunch of silver, that's nice and easy to divide. So if, you know, um, bride's family gets two thirds, groom's family gets one third, boom, split it right up. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Similarly, it doesn't change over time. So yeah. silver doesn't grow baby silver. <laughs> exactly. And so if you going into a marriage negotiation as, you know, an eligible young Viking mm -hmm. could either offer a bride price in silver or you as the father of daughters who you hope get married eventually mm -hmm. can offer a dowry in silver, you're a much more attractive prospect for marriage. It makes everything easier. It makes the negotiations simpler mm -hmm. and could potentially be a really big motivator to do that crazy thing and get on that ship and go raid some monastery. Yeah, that is, see, to me, that is just like, bong. when I heard that on your show, I was like, that makes so much sense. And the other part that's really interesting about it, other than it just making logical sense, is that. Like you said, it's that human element that like anybody can relate to. It feels like this is how raids would affect me in my life, you know? So I just like that theory for that aspect as well. Exactly. That's what I kind of, it feels so much more viscerally relatable than yeah. the big economic forces um, that you could almost see yourself doing that calculus that, mm -hmm. okay, I guess if I, you know, there's that risk, but. It would be really great for my daughter, and I guess we could do that. Maybe I can get my brother to watch the farm. You can almost see the calculations someone would go through. Right. Now, what parts of Scandinavian society at the time would have been most influenced by this kind of reasoning? Are we talking kings? Are we talking jarls? Are we talking farmers? Are we even talking about thralls, the slaves? So we're mostly talking about the, I would say, kind of... Middle classes, upper middle classes. Okay. So people who own land had enough land that marriage was an option and inheritance was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So much later in the Viking Age, particularly in Sweden, people erected a lot of runestones. 
And one of the ideas behind the runestone is it's like a physical inheritance. It's like a physical will, basically. Oh, Um, okay. And it's that the idea was basically what you see on these stones is basically like X uh, raised this stone for X. She was a great woman. And what a lot of scholars think that served as was, oh, the person who erected this uh, is asserting that they have the right to inherit from the person that they erected this stone for. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like erecting a billboard with a will on it. <laughs> and um, so the reason I bring that up is that it's really that same class of people, the kind of middle class, upper middle class People who owned land were doing pretty well for themselves, but were worried that, you know, if they made a couple wrong moves, things could start to get bad. Mm -hmm. And they might end up having to work as a servant or if they got in a lot of debt, end up as a thrall. Mm -hmm. So if so, we're mainly talking about, yeah, like the the middle to upper middle, the kind of the yuppies of the Viking uh, world, whereas perhaps more for the Jarls and the Kings, some of those other factors might have had a little more influence, like needing to please their retainers or thinking in grand terms in terms of trade routes reaching the Byzantine Empire or something. That might have reached their, like, the tactics at play in their mind. But for the average person, and when we're talking Vikings, we're talking farmers, right? So for the average person, we're talking... I need to get hooked up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And how am I going to do that? And, yeah. And, and and also, like you said, that's it's a family thing. So it's not you individually necessarily thinking that. It's really more like your mom and your pop being like, I got to marry off these daughters. I got to marry, get these <laughs> sons to, you know, I, I don't have enough to just divide between them all. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you can imagine... That at play also, um, you can easily imagine if you were the younger son of a family mm-hmm. that your mom and dad might be like, oh, you know, uh, we're great, Billy. You can live here. But like your brother is going to get the farm after this. Uh-huh. Hint, that hint. would be a <laughs> hint. hint. <laughs> it might make a lot more sense for you to go out, try and get some something that you can get into marriage negotiations with see if you can get yourself a farm Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're going to be living at your brother's house for the rest of your life and does anyone really want to do that why are you always down in the basement just playing video (laughs) games why don't you go on a raid and make something of yourself (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) oh mom (laughs) and there are um I forget the saga it is, but there is there's a scene that's almost like this in one of the sagas, not quite, but it's basically someone who does like to go raiding, and for some reason they're not able to for a while, and they are just kind of sulking around, like being a pain in the ass to everyone, bothering the servants. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can easily imagine that, you know, if the saga author had something, someone specific in mind, that exact kind of dynamic playing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I could totally imagine that actually <laughs> happening. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So let's say I do go raiding, right? Who is going to watch my farm when I'm gone? Yep. So we have fairly limited data about this. One of the, you know, interesting things about the period is certainly the average person going a Viking, no one's writing anything down. Mm-hmm. What 
we think probably happened is you're probably asking maybe another relative to come and check up, or you're just kind of trusting that Viking women could be pretty awesome. Um, mm-hmm. That there was a <laughs> um, there was a sensational report a while ago uh, that it was I think like grave of Viking warrior woman found, mm-hmm. um, and there's a bunch of complexity there, but. We have found, you know, graves of biological females who have weapons buried in their graves. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely an element of that going on mm-hmm. that, you know, you would leave behind and your wife's a badass. She's going to be able to do a decent job. Yep. Um, yep. It and- was a patriarchal society, so you'd probably feel better if, you know, you could loop in a brother or a cousin or an uncle or something. Do you um, get the sense that the fact that your husband is likely to go raiding summer after summer was a motivator for women to become badass or do you think it was just always part of the culture the the women just were badass so the husband could trust that the farm was going to be safe when he goes raiding um i think probably a little of both in that um you know i think one of the trends you see through history is when placed in positions that we hear about them, mm-hmm. women are consistently badass. <laughs> and, and so I think a large part of that is probably a lot of women uh, in other places, Europe at the time, weren't necessarily given an opportunity where they are responsible for defending a farm. Hmm. And given that responsibility, I think they rose to the occasion. But I don't necessarily think that if a similar situation arose in, say, England at the time, that women there wouldn't have done the exact same thing. Sure. Interesting. Okay, so now um, we're getting towards the end of our talk here. So why don't we talk about why did the Viking raids come to an end? So they had a they had a pretty good run, right? They had a, a few pretty good centuries there. The rest of Europe was like terrified of them for quite a while. But eventually it kind of petered out. And I'm sure there's a a number of different reasons to that. What's your take? So I think there were a lot of, obviously a lot of reasons. One of the obvious ones that gets cited all the time and I think probably has a lot of weight to it is right around the year 1000, in pretty much all of the areas that uh, Scandinavians were active, there was a big push to convert to Christianity. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this happened for a variety of reasons. Mostly it was you had uh, chieftains who were leading raids abroad, seeing the benefits that Christianity brought to kings. Mm -hmm. So especially in England, the church and the monarch were very closely tied together and really helped to project royal power. And so you have these kings of Norway specifically that see that and you get a sense. The sagas have all sorts of miracles about them converting. Mm Mm-hmm. The sense that you get is they weren't idiots. They looked around and were like, hey, if I can uh, get some written laws and some clerics to back me up, and if, you know, they can say like, no, dude, God wants this guy to be king, Uh that's going to help me. (laughs) And so a lot of some of the most famous ones are uh, Olaf Tryggvason and St. Olaf, Mm -hmm. that they converted while abroad, came back to Norway, but there's analogs in all of the countries. And started to convert the populations. Mm-hmm. And obviously that took a little while to take hold. You Both know, of those you're... guys were kings of Norway, right? Yes, I'm sorry. They came yeah. back, they um, conquered Norway, uh, began to act as kings, and forcibly converted the population in a lot of cases. Mm. And 
obviously it takes a couple generations to stick but eventually their people in scandinavia are christians and that makes it a lot more difficult to justify raiding monasteries raiding other christians it still happens sometimes, but mm-hmm. that's definitely more difficult to justify. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, going back to, like, ideological model, how much paganism really was, like, pro-rating, I think, is debatable. But it was definitely a lot easier when you're a pagan, you don't think a Christian site is sacred, so you'll go and raid it. Right. That's definitely a lot easier. Yeah. So and... there was that. There were... A lot of rulers in Europe just figured out how to stop Viking raids. I think that uh-huh. often goes underlooked. Um, I think people don't get a lot of credit that you have Alfred the Great in, in England who sets up this system of fortified towns, basically, and bridges okay. over rivers mm-hmm. and just makes it a pain in the ass to raid. Mm-hmm. And if it's one thing, if you can go abroad, you know, a couple people might die. But mostly you're getting spoils. If whole crews are getting wiped out, it's a lot less attractive. Yep. Yeah. And harder to get people to sign up for the next raid, I'm sure. Exactly. And um, kind of to, to piggyback on that, one of the things that was really interesting that, it, that we learned when we were doing our series on the medieval Irish gate um, was the Vikings, although they were very successful at hit and run raids all along the coast of Ireland, Whenever the local Irish managed to get an army together fast enough to catch them and engage them in pitched battle on land, the Vikings got their asses handed to them pretty much every time. We think yes. of a Viking as just being this huge, hulking, burly Conan-like man that's just going to swat you out of his, you know, out of his way. But really, what they were more was like sea guerrilla raiders, more than like heavy tanks i think yes exactly and you sort of see that again and again is that a lot of the descriptions of viking raids center on their suddenness and the fact that they showed up without anyone noticing it Mm -hmm. and when that was taken away they weren't great they were you know certainly no better than the local armies uh arguably worse in a lot of cases (laughs) you know you see towards the very end of the viking age 1066 Uh, The king of Norway brings an army over to England to try and conquer. Harold, who's the king of England, who then falls later that year to William the Conqueror, goes up and just kind of kicks their ass. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Sends them back to Norway and then goes south and gets conquered. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's a large part of it is that... It was really successful at the beginning because they were tactics that had never been seen before, mm-hmm. or at least not for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And as people caught on, it just was less and less successful. See, they got wise to the game. Exactly. Yeah. I imagine a lot of the uh, monasteries, or at least the monasteries where they concentrated their wealth, got moved inland. Yep. Things like that. I think even like the uh, the Book of Kells famously started being written close to the coast, but then ended up at... Kel, or maybe it started at Kel. I forget which is which, but it ended up inland to protect it more. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that, you know, if it happens enough times, you're like, all right, guys, let's build yeah. some bridges, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, so in the end, it seemed like the the rockin' berserkers just kind of got old. <laughs> they started to settle down, <laughs> you know, they, they were tired of the game. It was harder to get a gig and have it pay off. 
And in the end, it was just like, you know what? Maybe we'll just try farming again for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's 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 great. Uh, So thank you very much for for bringing your expertise on the show. Awesome exposition. And it seemed to be to really just make a lot of sense of what was going on with the Vikings before, during and after the the Viking Age. Um, So hopefully that illuminates a lot for our listeners here. So thanks for being on the show. Is there anything that you want to say, any projects coming up or things you want to plug? Um, no, I'd say, like to say thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Love talking Vikings. And it's nice to talk to uh, someone else instead of just my microphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that just say, um, check out the show. It's Viking Age Podcast, wherever podcasts are given away for free. And um, that coming up in the summer, uh, beginning in July, we're going to be starting a new series on the show that covers the Viking Age in the East. So a lot of that oh. doesn't get covered as much. Right. So talking about connections between Scandinavia, the Islamic world, Byzantium, mm-hmm. the establishment of Rus principalities. The it's going to be really fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you almost never get to hear about that either. So I would be very excited to hear about that. And listeners, right now, the series that's coming out on Lee's show is about Iceland. So, so if you want to really dig down deep, go check it out and get all of the the nitty gritties and i'm sure you've got a patreon too so listeners you know toss some silver his way so he doesn't have to be just him and his microphone so he can get a good marriage arranged and kind of like (laughs) make something of himself (laughs) exactly my mom will really thank you yeah (laughs) okay Meanwhile, uh, listeners, if you like what we're doing here on this show, remember you can support us on Patreon as well. And also remember that we currently have a special promotion going on right now. The first 20 people to leave a review on Stitcher for the Dead Ideas podcast get their portrait drawn in the time period and culture of their choosing. Just leave your review on Stitcher, then email me at deadideaspod at gmail.com with your portrait idea and a photo of you that I can work from, and I promise... I will make you look awesome. All right, everybody, we will see you next time for our grand finale episode. We always end an epic series like this with a mashup of a historical story and a pop culture movie. I'm going to keep the exact details a secret, but let me tell you the story that we have got is one of the most over-the-top, awesome, exaggerated, ridiculously bizarre sagas that ever came out of Scandinavia. And it's got it all. It's got adventuring warriors. It's got dark sorcerers. It's got an uppity princess. It's got ghosts. And of course, it's got berserkers. So that's next time. We will see you then. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.